welcome to another podcast episode of Indigenous Roots and Hoots, produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Roots and Hoots is about Indigenous peoples and culture, past and present, success stories and inspiring stories about Indigenous people and what they are doing today. Whether it's arts, music, sports, business, education, and so on, Indigenous people are affecting positive change in their communities throughout Canada. Our aim is to create a better awareness about Indigenous peoples to help bridge the gap of understanding for the reconciliation process in Canada to grow. Today's guest is Barry Sarazin. Barry is a proud member of the Algonquins of Pikwakanagan First Nation and is a traditional powwow dancer and drummer. Barry has been involved with Anishinaabek community development since 1981 with the goals of fostering the traditional customs and practices of the Algonquin Anishinaabek First Nations. In 1990, he moved to Thunder Bay in order to be of closer proximity to his traditional teachers who have continuously passed on many songs, ceremonies, oral histories, and sacred teachings. Barry is the Indigenous Educational Liaison with Opiongo High School, which involves setting up the cultural and language program for the Indigenous students at the school. Barry is a spiritual man, and in this interview with Gordon, he shares important stories about Algonquin history and people, stories of the rivers that flow in Algonquin territory, visions from his father and the art of birch bark canoe making, his journey to becoming a traditional men's dancer, and his involvement on the powwow committee since 1987. Please enjoy this podcast with Barry Sarazin, a husband, father, brother, and devoted community man. Hello and welcome to this podcast of Indigenous Roots and Hoots. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today my guest is Barry Sarazin from the Algonquin Nation of Pequawkanagan in Ontario. Hello, Barry. How are you today? I'm Namadis. Uh, I'm very good today. Okay, sounds good. Maybe we can start, uh, or you can start by telling us a little bit about uh, your community and your, your, your family background. Okay, well, my uh, community is Kwakanakan. It's located about an hour and a half drive west of Ottawa. And we're uh, the only Algonquin community in Ontario, but we have 10 other bands in uh, Quebec that are. Uh, Algonquin. They consist of Manawaki, Laxamo, Barrier Lake, Pico Can, Temiskaming, Winaway or Long Point First Nation, wow. Kippewa, and Wolf Lake, and and we're the only ones that are uh, Algonquins that are uh, wow. Like they're they're our brothers. I always thought that. There were other uh, Algonquin nations in uh, in Ontario besides you. Have you always been here, or did you move from the Quebec side to to Ontario? Because it's just over the river, right? Yeah, we never uh, really recognized the uh, Quebec and Ontario uh, borderlines in our territory. We recognized Mami Waninawak, the people of the Algonquin uh, tribes that I just listed off. Yeah. So. That's kind of like who we are, our, our people. Uh, like when my dad was, he was born in 1901, and I was born in 1961. He, uh, in his earlier days, in the 40s, uh, he used to trap up in the Algonquin Park 
And that's where all of our uh, people lived over there until the late 39, I think, when they created a, a reserve in Pukwakmakan. It was called Golden Lake at that time. Yeah. And uh, our, our people used to live in the uh, our home, which is the Algonquin Park. In the winter times, that's where our trap lines were. So that's where they stayed and lived there practically all winter until the springtime. And then they would canoe out to uh, Ottawa and sell their furs down there. So it was pretty hard when, uh, like my dad was in the 40, 1940s, where he had, he had no vehicle. So he had to get a ride up to where the road went in by Whitney area, Madawaska, and then he had to walk in 30 miles to his trap line. Right, yeah. And so then he would either get a ride back out, walk back out with all his furs. And before Christmas, you know, Christmas time is a, a good time because we're going to get presents. So we, we always look forward to our dad coming home. Yeah. So that was basically uh, his life. Later on, he became a park ranger. And he used to fly from the Algonquin Park down right behind our, our river. It's called the uh, Bonnershire River. But he always called it the uh, Kenoje Zibi Pike River. And that's where his plane would drop him off right behind our house. Wow. So. That's kind of how we uh, kind of grew up. Yeah. When I was born in 1961, I, I watched him for till I was about eight or nine, and you know his life and after his trapping and in the summer and the spring and summer and fall he would be uh, building birch bark canoes. That's an art that we're still trying to uh, revive and to keep alive. That's part of our culture. So I, I learned that from him, yeah. how to build uh, the birch bark canoes. And one of my brother's sons now, he's the master uh, canoe builder there. His name is Dave Stairs, and they call him Crockett. <laughs> Did your, your people, bad were they always like practicing the, the birch bark canoe making or was this something that was revived well my dad always built them yeah he started when he was about 20 i guess and he started building model canoes and then later on he uh started building the bigger ones and he built them uh you know when he was probably 30 till he was the last one built was when he was about 70 years old yeah so he uh trained one of the boys there uh stan stairs and he's the like we had two families eight like my dad had eight kids in his first family and stan was the baby boy so he yeah. trained him how to do that and then they trained other uh members in the community how to build birch bark canoes and before Stan passed away, he uh, taught Dave how to build birch bark canoes. So he's the master now. 
in Pukwaknakan, and I'm the, the apprentice. Okay. So, still going on, still yeah. carrying it on. Well, uh, we'll pick up on that a little bit further down the podcast. But I want to talk, I want to ask you about what's your current occupation? Are you, you working at a school or something like that? Well, I worked in our community school for 19 years. And just this January, I took over a job here at our high school, which is located about 20 minute drive going east of our community. It's called Opiango High School. And I'm what they call the Oshkabi Sense Education Liaison Worker for the high school students here. Okay. Tell me more about that. Uh, what do you do? Like you work closely with Indigenous students? Yeah, I work with all of the Algonquin community members. That's our priority. But uh, there are Inuit students here and uh, Métis students. So I work with all of them. I have a caseload of about 38 students I got to work with from grade 9 to grade 12. So I'm just trying to set up their uh, cultural and language program for them because they never had it here for yeah. all the years. I came to school here in 19... I graduated in 1986 from here. Yeah. So we never had that, any cultural or language here within the school when I was going to school here. Yeah. And they never had that, you know, after I left and they still didn't have it up to probably uh, now that they hired me. So all the young students I taught while I was teaching them in, uh, on the reserve, I now see them here. So I speak the language to them and they just look at me and they say, well, we don't quite understand. Yeah. You know, but they do have it in elementary school, but they don't have enough teachers there. They only have one teacher for two schools. Yeah, that's a problem in the other areas too, where they don't have enough teachers. Uh, in some places, they have to import teachers from the yeah. community. Yeah. It just started in January. You said you must. Uh, it must be exciting to do something new with older students, uh, students that you worked with before. You must have some some pretty good ideas in mind that you uh, cultural and language projects you must have in mind. Do you have something you want to share with us about that? Yeah, I, I have a, a vision for them in regards to uh, cultural. And like, I want to bring in Dave or Crockett. He's the master canoe builder to uh, start building uh, small canoes with them. Maybe three footers and, you know, the next couple of years, getting up to build uh, at least a 12 or 14 foot birch bark canoe right here in the school. So that'd be really exciting to uh, see if we can get a couple of youngsters, whether they're boys or girls, to uh, take on that fire and, and make it work and keep that art building birch bark canoes uh, alive. Yeah. Well being. Other things that I have in mind for them, like they're going to give me a pretty big room there. So I want to be able to get a freezer in there and teach them how to um, field dress a deer or field dress a moose and uh, learn them how to uh, 
break down the meat to make, uh, you know, your hamburgers and your sausages and your steaks and, and, you know, what do you do with the bones after, like, you can make tools out of the bones, scraping tools, scrape and hide. So that's what I pretty much have vision for them, where I can take them out to the trap line and teach them how to trap, how to uh, skin the furs, and also incorporate the elders from the Pequok and Con who still do trapping. Not too many of them do. I see yeah. uh, Cliff Modest there. He's uh, still trapping. You know, got to bring in his skills. And, you know, his grandchildren, great-grandchildren are going to school here. So it would be good to have that knowledge passed on, you know, how they uh, dry furs and, you yeah. know, what they can do with them. I'm sure there are going to be a lot of non-Indigenous uh, students who would be curious and be interested in uh participating in some of your classes would you uh be oh yeah as well oh yeah it's open for all of them when i go and talk to them in uh, classrooms i said that's you know who we are it's a part of uh, reconciliation uh, you know we learn from you guys and so now uh if you want to learn from us we're going to teach you a few yeah. things of, uh, about our way our life and our culture and our history yeah, you know, I think a lot of non-Indigenous people are very interested in learning about Indigenous people. That's been so hidden from them over the years, and uh, now that it's just emerging more inclusive to you know for everybody to to better understand Indigenous people and you know their way of life. So it's very good to see that happening across Canada, and I see kind of a revitalization of. Indigenous culture and language happening you know, across this country. Yeah. Yes. Growing up as a child, were you taught your traditional language and culture? Well, I was always, I tell people back home, uh, I tell them I learned uh, how to dance here. You know, I learned my language here. You know, after I went away when I was about 17, I went down to Ottawa and then I met up there with some families, there were seven or 10 of us anyways from uh, different nations. Uh, there were some Crees, there were some Jibways, and Paul Najwan there was our lead singer for our drum group at that time in the, you know, 80, 81. When we started as whirlwind singers, uh, that's who they called us. Yeah. So there we, uh, 1982, we uh, met elders from Kenora. So that's basically how I uh, got into drumming and dancing after I left uh, reserve. But I always, always tell people, you know, my outfit comes from here. Like my dad, uh, after he passed away in 84, I had a vision of my uh, moccasins. And he died in 81. It took him four years. I had a vision. My my dad's hands came out of the dark. And there was this uh, little cupboard there with the light shining out of it. And his hands pulled those uh, moccasins out of in my vision or dream. And he pulled them out. And he says, so you forgot these, son. 
that's what he said to me. So I looked at those moccasins, and that's uh, how I beaded them up and how I uh, made my own moccasins. And that was the start of my dance outfit. I guess he wanted to tell me that, uh, you know, like I lost my way when I was young, 16 to probably 20, 21. You know, that's when I quit drinking and stuff like that. Yeah. So he gave me that. And then 82 or whatever, I had another vision of my, uh, I was dancing at this powwow. So that powwow was our grounds, what we have today in Pukwaknakan. I started that in 1987 when I was going to university in North Bay. People were always asking me, well, well we have a powwow. You know, chief and councils were always asking, the people were asking them, how, how come we're not having powwows? You know, so, so in 87, I moved up to North Bay and to study over there after I finished Algonquin College in Ottawa. And took a commerce program there. So I coordinated the people back home. People are always asking me, let's have a powwow. So, well, let's have a powwow then. Well, so that's when, 88, when we started to have our powwow over there, Pukwakmakan. So that was a, a long journey just to trying to make our powwow grounds within the community because we had about three or four sites before that trying to decide what where we're going to build it. Yeah. So. Well, I've been to Nepal a few times. I, I, every time I go, it's like, it's just a beautiful setting. Especially, I, I can remember all the, the birch trees that you have in on one of your sites. It's not a big bow, but it's uh, it's very close-knit, and uh, I really, we really enjoyed our time there. So, good luck with that. And uh, you know, I'm glad you, you know, your people have, have, have brought it back. I remember when this started, I was just starting, I was working at the Wadawa Native Friendship Center here in Ottawa. And I think that's around the time when I first met you. Yeah. I've known you for some time now. You sit on the Algonquin Language Committee. Tell us, tell us about the work of the committee and the state of the Algonquin language in your community. Well, working on the Powell Committee since 87 to the present day, has always been a, a growing uh, situation. And it's a lot of teamwork. You've got to network with the people. You know, who's going to be looking after the grounds, repairing the grounds? They have a crew for that. They have uh, the finance people, you know, who's going to be taking care of all of the uh, people coming through the gate? You know, who's going to take care of the drums, the singers, and the ones that are coming in? So we have a whole like 20 people working on the committee and, you know, I'm, I'm kind of more the advisor for the uh, spiritual drums that are coming in. You know, all the elders have passing away now, like Jim Wendigo or Alex Heed or Bud Friday. And these are all the ones that carry the traditional drums from the uh, Northwestern Ontario. And then we used to bring Jim Wendigo and he was the one that in 95 that, took my brother Merv to where the where the power grounds are now. He put a stake in the middle where the arbor is going to be. He says, this is where your arbor is going to be. He says, over in the south door, that's where your grand entry is going to be. 
See, most grand entries around here from Thunder Bay over this way, they all come in from the east. But yeah. with this yeah. particular ground that we built, they're Thunderbird Powell grounds. As what they carry up in Kanori areas, they call Thunderbird drums, whether it's a grandmother or grandfather drums. So in 95, that, you know, had a vision of the drum there from Alex Skeed after traveling up there since 1982 and learning uh, from the elders over there, you know, what our uh, ceremonies are and our traditions are in regards to uh, drumming and dancing. And so Jim traveled all the way to the community over here and started to walk with us and teach us. And, you know, we're so fortunate that we had an elder like that to uh, help us uh, reestablish our powwows here in Pukwaknakon. Now it's grown so much that every year there's 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 people that come there. So we have quite a job as a powwow committee working all together to try to satisfy everybody that's coming there. You know, we have our committee consists of people going out hunting and wanting to get moose in the bush so they can feed everybody when they come there. Or fish, you know, so yeah, that's uh, part of uh, our community development. And I want to pass that on to these uh, young people here in the school. So they have some idea that when they go to, like, say, Trent University, they have a big powwow that's going on there. They might want to get involved in it. Or Ottawa, you know, or wherever they're going to go to university. You know, they're going to have powwows going on there. So they might want to get involved and keep learning more about their culture. Yeah. So We have also, uh, in my community, uh, just recently started uh, the powwow. I think this is going to be the third summer coming up. We're going to be having a powwow. And there's various reasons for it. We're not, I mean, we lost our culture, our, our cultural rituals and, our, you know, the stuff that we used to do before the colonists came and before the church arrived. So once that, once that happened, started happening, we started, our people started, you know, going to church more and, and doing away with the, all the traditional activities such as the power. So uh, I, I know it's coming back in, in many communities across Canada. And it's good to see the revitalization of our, our culture and our languages. You were talking about the power committee, and I think I asked you about the language committee. So you're also on the Algonquin language committee. Am I correct in saying that you're on the committee? I think I saw that in your biography. Uh, well, how is the committee doing in terms of, you know, its work and in terms of revitalization of the Algonquin language in your community? Well, the language there is very low, like, uh, rate. And it's because of the, uh, they don't really have the cash to pay the teachers, eh? Right. It's not, uh, not getting the uh, teachers there, but they don't have the money. Yeah. So, like one time, I think uh, Paul Martin was running to be the prime minister a few years back, or, you know, he said he had $5 billion there if you guys uh, 
would get me in as uh, prime minister. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Harper got in and, and you know, he uh, swiped that $5 billion off the table. And, you know, I said, well, the chiefs out there, you should be going after this guy. Where's this language money, you know, that Paul Martin had? You know, so nothing ever became of it. And there's hardly any language or uh, money is available today. We don't see it happening around because they only hired one teacher over in um, the elementary schools. I mean, that's quite a challenge for her to do that. You know, me and my wife, uh, we're graduates of the um, Lakehead University uh, Native Teachers course there. And then, you know, she can't even get a job there. And she's fluent in the language. She speaks Cree, Ojibwe, and Algonquin. They can't even hire her over there. It's because of the money. Yeah, lack of funding to pay for language teachers. That's a barrier for, you know. For a lot of communities that are trying to start their language revitalization programs, funding is, a, is, is one of the other major hurdles, obstacles, barriers, I think it's probably a better term, in, in, in the efforts that they're trying to make with re- language revitalization. So, yeah, so that's been happening. That's a barrier with many First Nations across our country. You also spent some time in Thunder Bay. Tell us about your time there and what impact did it have on you, you given the notorious history of Thunder Bay and its relationship with uh, Indigenous people and especially the students that have died there, you know, uh, mysteriously. You went to university there and uh, how do you feel about that whole situation in Thunder Bay? Thunder Bay is, well, I didn't run into uh, too much uh, racism there. When I was going to school there and working, but I moved over there uh, because I uh, knew the elders in that area in Canario would give me uh, more time with them to learn more uh, ceremonial songs with them. But one of the reasons I moved there is like my uh, buddy Paul Najwan moved up to go to university there. So I got reconnected with him over there and before i went up there i uh redid his uh traditional drum i scraped the moose hide for him and i rebuilt his drum and then i uh put it all together for him and then i went up to heron bay powwow with my daughter there and i gave him his drum i never asked for anything i said here here you go you know let's sing together he said, okay. So 1991, I moved over there. And uh, I worked for Windamagan and uh, another uh, business over there. We had to fly up to uh, certain northern communities and uh, do economic community development up there. But when I was over there, I had a vision of my traditional eagle bustle that I dance with because I'm a men's traditional dancer. Well, I didn't want to uh, be a men's traditional dancer. I wanted to be a grass dancer. But when I was over there, I had a vision of this eagle that came to my window. 
for four days and four nights after when I was dreaming. And this ego would come to my window. Then on the fourth day, that's when Paul Najwan came to my house and he presented me with this full eagle. And I said, oh, what? Uh. So I said, well, I guess I have to be a traditional dancer now. Yeah. So I had met another friend over there. His name is Johnny Pierre, and he passed away now. And he wasn't that, you know, he was only maybe uh, 48, 50 years old when he passed away, but I became good friends with him. So I said, oh, I need you to help me. I gave him some tobacco and some gifts, and he says, what? He said, I need you to put together this ego bustle for me. So he said, sure, let's do it. I'm going to do it right away. And He says, what kind of colors you want on it? And I said, well, whatever, green and white or whatever. So we made the bustle up. And uh, I started dancing over there as a traditional dancer. And, but I always come home and dance at our powwows here too. Describe to our listeners what a bustle is. An eagle bustle is an eagle, and you put it together, it represents the sun, the sun rays, and the eagle. The eagle is also represents uh, the thunderbirds. When they leave here, they go into the heavens, they turn into thunderbirds over there. And when they come back here, they turn into either a a golden eagle or a bald eagle. And the golden eagle is what they call a canoe. And the bald eagle is called mega Z. So there's a story about that, eh? About the eagle that came down and uh, there's a song that goes with it. Alex Skeet had a vision of it and says, I seen the eagle and I heard the eagle. So I guess there was uh, going to be a destruction of uh, the earth because nobody was honored, nobody was taking care of the earth anymore, so the creator was going to destroy it. And the eagle flew up and talked to the creator. He says, no, there's two people over on the hill there. They have a sacred fire going and burning tobacco and they're praying and they're talking about you know, taking care of the earth. So that eagle flew down the crater was going to create this big fireball and wipe out the whole earth. So the big eagle flew down, surrounded the people where they're all scared and they're in a big circle and the eagle put his big wings around them. And when the fireball came over them, he blew it to the north and the snow stopped it, burnt out that fireball so that was why you know why we have eagle feathers and why we pray with them because that's the connection to the creator or manado or god people talk about yeah so alex keith sang that song that he had a vision of it and that's what it says i seen the eagle and i heard him so that's where that song comes from you know, where the eagle bustles come from is from the sun spirit. Mm -hmm. 
So that's what I know a little bit about that. Well, like when you build the, your bustle, like it's behind you, right? Then you, it kind of straps onto your back or your lower back. And it's made of uh, eagle feathers. Where do you, I mean, a lot of eagle feathers have to go into making one of those. Where do you get your eagle feathers from? Like for me, I was given that for the drum that I made for Paul. He got it from uh, somebody up there, was given to him. So he gave me that as a gift. Wow. Sometimes the eagles, they get trapped in traps, eh? Trapper's traps. Yeah. Uh, my wife, daddy traps up north there in James Bay area, and they're always getting in caught in the traps, eh? Oh, yeah. So... He says he sends them down here. So Jesse Hannes, she has about three eagles, and you know we make the eagle bustles. If people are looking for eagle feathers or eagles, we uh, trade with them, eh? Yeah. You know, so whatever they want to offer. So they always ask ask me, you know, <laughs> what is it? Cost for an eagle. I said, Well, I don't really buy eagle feathers or what it costs. I said, You know, for me, it took me almost two weeks to finish a drum. So that's two weeks of work. Yeah. And if you want to look at it in, in that term, yeah. that's what a lot of people. So the eagle is, you know, in indigenous cultures, it's quite a strong symbol or, uh, what would you call the eagle? Like, I don't want to call it symbol, but it, it's very a significant animal bird that that's closely connected to the indigenous culture. You want to add to that? Yeah. Well, the eagle is the messenger to God, Manado, to the people. That's why they use that eagle feather eh, when they pray. And the creator hears us all over, you know, when we pray with that eagle feather and we do our smudges or we do our pipe ceremonies or whatever, he still hears us. So the power of that eagle feather, this connection to the creator, the spiritual link from here to the spiritual world. So that's what I know as well. That's where our uh, eagle bustles come from, eh? Yeah. The uh, Thunderbirds, they're the ones that brought them down. There was a man, a nanabush. He was the one that brought those, to eat the men's uh, dance outfit down here. So they're all come from the uh, spirit world, eh? Even the jingle dresses. That come from what they call Manadoi Quay. She was the one that brought those down. Their healing dresses. And there's a story about that, how that healing dress came down and why it came down. And that was come out of, uh, from Maggie White in uh, Whitefish Bay. And that was the beginning of the eagle or the uh, jingle dress dancers. And the same thing with the grass dancers. That all come from the spirits. And the same thing with the fancy dance. Outfits for the boys and men, eh? That come from the, the butterfly spirit. 
So that's how our dance outfits came to be. And our dances and our drums were come from the Thunderbirds, the traditional drums, the original drums that came here, down here a long time ago before any of the non-Native people came across the ocean. It was already here. And the drums came down. Why those drums came down was because the crater was upset because, uh, you know, the Ojibwe's were fighting the Sioux people and the Algonquins were fighting the Iroquois people. And so he brought down those drums and he says, I, I didn't make you as people to hurt one another and kill one another. So that's why these drums are here because they're peace drums, the very first peace drum peace um, treaty between us and the creator. And that's what uh, the elders shared with me. They talked about what they call Anishinaabe win. They used to call it Medewin. But uh, 100 years ago or whatever that died, they said, now it's called uh, Anishinaabe win. And that's why those traditional drums are here they're brought down here and they're supposed to be made all over uh, they call it bear island there's a story about that too that jim wendigo had shared with me while he uh, two people tried to kill him and he was up in the hospital in manitoba they're going to open him up he says well you're not going to find anything wrong with me it was a spiritual thing that happened to him he said the crater or Nanabush, Nanabushu came to his window was seven stories up. And he says, I'm going to come through there, through the window. I'm going to talk to you. He says, okay, well, come on in. So he went right through the window and he started talking to him about different stories. He says, oh, you look like that man from uh, in the Bible. He says, no. He says, that's not me. He says, that's Jesus. He says, I'm Nanabush. He says, I'm the one that made this side of the world over here with God. He says, uh, oh, okay. He says, I want to tell you something, okay? He says, I like you. He says, Jim, he says, I like the way you carry your traditional drums, your grandfather you carry and your grandmother drum. I hear you. And I also hear other people all over the island. I hear them calling it Turtle Island or Mother Earth. He says, I'm the one who made it over here. I made this island, he says, from all the Inuit country right down east and west and all the way down in South America. He says, I made this whole island. He says, I want you to tell all the people out there on this island that I made. He says, I, I named it Bear Island. Missing. He says, he says, oh, why? He says, because I asked, after I made it, I asked all the animals to go around to see if it was big enough for all the people, Anishinaabe people, and all the people that were coming over across the oceans. And the only one that made it around the whole island was Makwa, the bear. He could go up big hills and go up trees and he can fall down off big rocks and he won't even get hurt. Mm -hmm. So after he uh, made it all the way around there, he asked the bear, is it big enough for everybody? And he says, yep. So he says, that's why 
I call it Makwamanissing. He says, that's the true name of this island over here. So that's a true story that he had a visitation with Nana Baju in his room, several stories up in the hospital, and nobody interrupted him. He was there. He said, if it's for three hours talking to the creator, he says, I hear everybody out there when they pray, you know. So just wanted to share that. Tell us about your uh, involvement with PTCB singers. Are you a singer and a drummer? or I know you're a dancer. You drum also and you sing. Yeah, I'm uh, the lead singer of that drum. Well, that drum was created in uh, 1995. And I had a vision after Alex Skeet passed away. And he uh, brought that drum to me in my vision. He put me in this roundhouse. They always put me in the roundhouse. Eh? That's where those drums were lowered. So he was in the center of the roundhouse there. And he motions me over and he says, I have a drum here for you. I said, oh, okay. He says, but I want you to wait. He says, Becca, wait till the other singers come here. And that was Paul and Gordy Simon and Alec Akwenzi and Dave Ducharme and all those guys. They all came in there. Eh? And he says, okay. He says, I have this drum for you. Alex was saying, and this is going to be your, your drum. So that was the grandfather drum that I carried, the first one. So I... Uh, come up with that name, the Kichisipi Rini, which is part of the uh, tribes of uh, Algonquin people that are in our territory. And Kichisipi Rini is the, uh, the main tribe that lived on the Ottawa River. It started in Kamiskamang, uh, where the river starts, and it goes all the way down to St. Lawrence. So that's our whole territory. And out of those different communities I was talking about, like Manawaki, uh, there's a river that flows down to the uh, Ottawa. They call it the Udaway, the Udaway River or the Gatineau River. But in our language, it's called Anatongaranga Zibi. Wow. And uh, all the other rivers that flow into there, like uh, you ever go by Iron Prior and it's called Madawaska River? Yeah. Well, that's uh, where an Algonquin tribe lived there. And it was called the Madawaska Rini. Okay. And then there's one that's down by the Rideau River, and that's called the Weska Rini, the people of the deer people. So all these rivers flow into the Ottawa River. <clears throat> there was a hereditary chief, 1400s. His name was Tezuwit. He was the grand chief of all those people where all those rivers flowed into the Ottawa River. Those were the communities of the Algonquin people that lived there. All the chiefs like the Wescarinis, the Madawaskarinis, the Canuchsipirini, the people of the Pike, uh, you know, they all flowed into that river. And so his job, Chief Tezuit, was to go and collect information from all those chiefs of uh, what's going on in our territory. You know, the biggest thing that's going on is that all the settlers were coming in and they're taking all the trees and taking over the lands and 
you know, destroying our hunting grounds and our, our moose and deer populations. And so his job was to go over and meet up with those ships coming in there. I think one of the, his uh, warrior island was in Pembroke there. It's called Morrison Island. So that's where all the warriors uh, hung out there. And when all the ships would come through, they had to go through Chief Tezuat and his uh, warriors over there because, you know, at that time it was the roads were the rivers. So they had to go through the rivers to uh, get into our territory. So one time, I think Jock Carchair was coming through, and he got through the uh, Warrior Island there, Morrison Island in Pembroke. And so Chief Tezwat sent his warriors up the river, and they captured him, and they brought him back. And he says, where do you think you're going? Well, I'm going into the land to explore. I'm here to explore. He says, no, you're not. He says, I'm the chief, the grand chief of this territory here, and you're not allowed to go past your view or you'll be killed. So he sent them back to uh, France. And so the king of France says, what are you doing here? He says, well, I was captured over there by the Algonquins and they sent me home. And why? Why did he send you home? He said, well, I didn't give them gifts and I didn't honor them. So he came back and he made some some honorary gifts for him. And uh, so I guess he was the the head minister of transportation at that time. Yeah. That's That's a true story. Very interesting. I mean, we could... I can sit here hours talking, listening to your your stories about you know history of the Algonquin people in the area. Oh, I was going to tell you about the uh, the drum name. Yes, go ahead. Well, that drum name became Kitchisipperini, the people of the Ottawa River, and so that's what I did in 1995 up to around uh, 2000, when I decided to move back home, I went to all the Algonquin communities and I started to talk to them about the uh, traditional Thunderbird drums. Yeah. In 1998, I worked in Winaway, Long Long Point First Nations, kind of like northeast of Kippewa, right in the bush. And that's where I had a vision of the uh, grandmother Thunderbird drum. I carry both of them now, the grandfather and grandmother. And Jim Winnego is one of the, he's the elder that birthed those drums from his drums. His drum is the original drums that was given that from the original drums. They still have them, one of them in Kenora area. I think it's a grandfather drum they have over there. So these drums that I carry, I didn't know I was getting into that. That's what I carry now. And so it all has to do with uh, Anishinaabe when they are traditional conservation systems and why we hunt fish and trap, and why we do these ceremonies to make more fish or we make more animals or make more trees. So that's our traditional conservation using those drums and ceremonies. And that's what uh, he taught me. 
and the elders up in that area. That's why these drums are down here today. They're ceremonial drums. So that's a descendant of those drums or I carry are descendants of the very first two drums that came down here. And what a job it is to carry those because you have to do feasts and you have to be a hunter, you have to be a fisher, you have to be a trapper to do all these things, eh? Yeah. That's what I did when I went traveling around in our territory talking to people about that, eh? Yeah. So that's what I do. That's my job. I guess I got to do that because I had a vision of it. So it's a spiritual thing and I have to keep carrying it on. And, and you have to learn your language, eh? Because uh, each one of those drums, they have a grandfather, spirit, and their grandmother. And they only speak the language when they want to give you a song. They uh, only speak the language. They'll say, do you know this song? Yep. I know that song. <laughs> and I'll wake up. I don't know the song. <laughs> yeah, the drum is very, uh, it's more than just something that, that makes sound. With indigenous people, it's a very, it's a very sacred thing. It's got meaning. It's got life. And, you know, it's got spirit in it. So, for people that are listening to this, uh, this conversation, um, you know, the, the drum is not just a drum. Any drum, it's, it's very, very powerful and spirits in it and spirit, spirituality in it, and uh, it's very yeah. significant part of indigenous culture. Yeah, it's the same thing as uh, within the Bible, like in the center of that drum, in that heart of that drum, that's where, where your seven grandfathers' teachings today, yeah. you know, honesty, respect, bravery, and whatever, you know, those things are inside there with that spirit there. So, you know, you're yeah. carrying that. And so you have to, it's a very, very sacred thing, and you, you can't drink alcohol or do drugs, Yeah, you know. The last thing I wanted to talk to you about was it's about reconciliation you know and it has been a buzzword recently in our country both from the native side and non-native side people wanting to you know with I guess ever since they discovered the graves children in the, in the residential schools and Canadians I think were appalled stunned you know astonished and hard to believe that this actually happened since then Things kind of changed, I think, with the way people think about Indigenous people, Indigenous issues, and our history. So efforts have been made by government, by non-government, by Indigenous people, by non-Indigenous people. It's good to see people making efforts to 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 make our country better. And reconciliation is the buzzword that's been going around. And uh, I wanted to ask you what your what your thoughts are about reconciliation and what people are doing to make our country a better place to live for, you know, for everyone that lives here. Yeah, it's pretty interesting things going on with that, especially with the 94 uh, reconciliation recommendations they have. You know, you got to, like the government, they have all our funding. You know, they got everything they took out of our lands. They took all the oil and the, you know, gold and silver and trees and, you know, they have trillions of dollars over there. They they got rich off us, ours, and they're supposed to be equal. You know, so now they have to wake up and say, well, now you got to commit funding to, uh, you know, our schools. We need our schools to have our languages, 
we need we need that. You know, they have to commit funding that, you know, they're going to ensure our living conditions and better water on the reserves and better housing. You know, up north in James Bay area, there's like 22 people living in one house, you know. And to get housing up there, you have to ship everything in. You know, they have regulations there where you, you can't build log houses or whatever. They, everything has to be shipped in. So, so those are some of the things that uh, society have to realize that it's like a fourth world country out there, and a lot of the First Nations uh, areas, and, and food is hard to come by. And uh, you know, a lot of them they don't have big stores, big WalMarts up there. You know, they have to pay twice, three times the price, you know. So they got to look at developing an Anishinaabe cultural and historical awarenesses as well and programs. That has to be put in school system from kindergarten all the way to grade 12 and also the university and colleges. You know, our cultural has to be within there so it survives. And the same thing with the language. You know, there has to be committed funding there. And also at the municipal government levers, levels too, they have to collaborate with the local indigenous communities on economic or infrastructure and what's going on there. You know, we need, we need everything that they're getting. We have to be equal. So they have to look at when they're training people out there, they need to hire Anishinaabe people or Inuit people or Métis people, you know, they need to hire them from communities, whether they're doing economic development or other projects. So funding reconciliation programs that encourage dialogue and build relationships between the Anishinaabe people and the non and the Canadians, you know, that's what you know, I see happening out there. You know, one time I was trying to get my funding to, uh, they had this grant program, arts program down in uh, Toronto. And I was trying to get some funding to uh, help develop a birch bark canoe, canoe building program. And I couldn't get through, you know, their, their grant application was so difficult to get through to that. You know, I, I developed and worked on a business plan for so many years. And I says, I have it right here. Why, why can't you just accept it? You know, so that type of situations of getting grants. So you have to be a university graduate just to get through it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so if they make it easier access for us, then like a lot of Native people, they don't have uh, those skills of computer skills and whatever. So they need to make things a little bit more simpler to, for us. You know, we uh, require as post-secondary students to take, you know, they should be taking one course of the Indigenous perspectives, you know, so that they learn. The Canadians should learn that, you know, who we are, where we're from, and have a better understanding relationship. And we got to establish our language courses as, all the way through the school system, if we're going to have any retention in the language to keep our languages, just like the French people, you know, they have um, all kinds of opportunities. 
they have big money coming into theirs to keep their languages alive. So we need equality there. It's okay, and people need to understand that. You know, we need money. Government's got our money. They got our resources. Time to share them. Time for us to grow and to become strong. So I kind of look at that as, uh, you know, conclusion to uh, what my thoughts are on reconciliation. You know. Yeah. Well said. Thank you very much. We've been talking. Yeah. Barry Sarazen. He's a traditional cultural teacher and a dancer, a singer. He's from the Pequawakanagan Algonquin Nation in Ontario. Thank you, Barry, for joining us today. Miigwech. Hey, miigwech. We'll see you again, my friend. Roots and Hoots is a podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Music is provided by David Finkel. For more episodes like this and to learn more about the work we are doing, please visit www.legacyofhope.ca to learn more.